Welcome to Lethal Dose, your favorite toxicology-focused podcast where we delve into true crime cases involving drugs and poisons. My name is Venus Dineko. I'm a layperson fascinated by true crime. My name is Kayla Woods. I'm an author and toxicologist. Let's get started. Trigger warning in this episode for discussions of medical trauma and suicide. In 2013, a study published in Critical Care Journal examining the mortality rate of U.S. intensive care units found that the most common causes of death throughout the period examined were brain hemorrhages, sepsis, and complications from surgery for aortic dissection. Of 482,601 people who were admitted, 58,952 of them died. In 2014, Clinical Pharmacology Journal published an article suggesting solutions to reduce errors in critical care settings, which stated that medication errors were more likely to happen in the ICU than other hospital settings, and accounted for 78% of all medical errors in the ICU. Although not all of these produced death or even harm to the patient, it was estimated that there were 1.75 medication errors per patient per day in the ICU. Oh Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Most of these errors resulted from mix-ups due to packaging or labeling, such as using an instant-release pill versus a time-release pill and things like that mm-hmm. that, again, caused no harm to the patient. But still, 1.75... still a mix-up. Yeah. It's not one... a good number. It's not it... a good number to have. Per patient per day? No. <laughs> yeah, like, we're fucking up your medication at least once, almost two times a day. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What began happening in the St. Barnabas Medical Care Center's critical care unit in Livingston, New Jersey in February of 1991 was a terrifying anomaly compared to these numbers. On February 11th, a pharmacy nurse brought a suspicious IV bag to the risk manager to show her that the port on the bag looked used, but the bag itself was still full and leaking. The hospital's assistant director of security was called in, and he sent the IV bag to the pathology lab to have it tested. The bag was only supposed to contain a solution of saline and heparin, but was found to have insulin as well. Oh, no. Yeah, and we covered insulin back in season one, so do you remember anything about insulin toxicity? I remember, doesn't it affect the pancreas or kidneys? Mm Mm-hmm, it definitely does. And if you overdose on it because you you know, are or are not diabetic and you have too much for whatever reason, you're going to end up with profuse sweating, anxiety, disorientation, and then it can lead to seizures, coma, and death. So it is, it is serious. And we covered that back in episode, or we covered that back in season one. So if you want to go listen to that episode, you can, but we have way too much to cover here to go into insulin right now. Okay. (laughs) On Valentine's Day, a patient named Anna Byers was put on a heparin drip, and within an hour, she was sweating, confused, nauseous, and shaking. Her labs revealed dangerously high levels of insulin, and she was given orange juice, which is a fast way to stop an insulin attack if it's not too bad. Anna's was too bad. She had to actually be placed on an IV of dextrose, which saved her life, but she continued to suffer through the night as her body battled the extra insulin, even Mm. with the extra sugar. She was scheduled to go into surgery that morning, but was possibly too weak to even handle the procedure. You know, she could have gone under anesthesia and coded. Right. 
They wanted to hope for improvement, so her heparin IV was removed in preparation for the surgery, and immediately Anna began to feel better. So she went into hmm. her scheduled surgery, she had a catheter put in her heart, and then she was back in her room and recovering like pretty nicely by about 2 p.m. But once she was placed back on her heparin drip, she started to crash. She was put back on the dextrose drip, but even by 11 p.m., there wasn't enough glucose left in her blood to get a reading. She had Holy no shit. blood glucose. I don't even know how you survive having no blood yeah. glucose and not yeah, because don't you need that for, like, important yeah. metabolic <laughs> processes or something? Yeah. We, <laughs> like, oh, my God. Yes. We just okay. covered sugar in a microdose. Like, yeah, you need sugar. You need it. You're, yeah. You're going to die without it. Yeah. Yeah. So on the same floor, Fred Belf was having the same issues. He'd started a heparin drip at 7 a.m. and at noon wasn't even able to keep the orange juice down because he was nauseous and vomiting and sweating and just, he was doing terribly. But the connection between the patient's conditions and the IV bags wasn't made until around 7 p.m. the next night. Belf and Byers both were taken off their IVs and immediately improved, and so Belf's bag was sent for testing. Unsurprisingly, it came back positive for insulin contamination, but this time, it was also noted that the bag seemed to have needle pricks near the edge, hidden in the seam of the plastic. Mm. This prompted a review of patient records, which revealed that patients had been coding unexpectedly for months with spiked insulin levels. Not all of these patients were diabetic, but they had all been located on the critical care ward. This wasn't an accident involving similar-looking packaging for insulin drips and heparin drips. This was intentional. Yeah, well, when there's needle pricks involved, like, this isn't, like, we mix things up. This right. is somebody's dosing somebody. Right. When hospital authorities dug deeper to figure out who was behind all this, they found three nurses were working on shift almost every time a patient coded. One of these nurses was cleared. Another was found guilty of stealing morphine for personal use. But they're not Unrelated, even the but okay. Issue. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Unrelated, but all right. And then the third nurse kept telling investigators that they had nothing to hide and that the constant requests for interviews was less important than the nursing they were hired to do. So when they finally got this third nurse cornered, he refused to answer questions. And so finally, the head of security told him, I know you're putting something in those bags. And in reply, the nurse said, you can't prove anything. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so the head of security, his name is Thomas Arnold, and Arnold could read between the lines here. Although he had no hard evidence linking this nurse to the deaths in the ICU or the cardiac care unit where this nurse also worked, Arnold still decided at this point that he needed to report everything to the police. But the police told Arnold that it would be best handled internally by the hospital. <laughs> And Thomas Arnold was himself an ex-cop, so he thought that there was enough to bring it to the chief of police and have something happen. It's not clear why the police didn't investigate. It could either be because the hospital was the largest employer in this town and it would have been a huge scandal, or because yeah, we've the seen how that goes. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> or it's because the chief didn't think that the police would be able to gather enough evidence to issue a warrant or convict a suspect if the people who understood all of the medicines and toxicology 
couldn't themselves even in, like initiate an investigation. Right. So, but so what Arnold in the hospital did was they decided to gather evidence and try to stop the malfeasance themselves. Stop motion cameras were installed in the medication storage room. Drug sign out practices were implemented and interviews were held with staff and patients. Things went back to normal for a few months, but then in October, two more patients coded and were found to have IV bags which were contaminated with insulin. Even with the cameras and the sign-out processes, they had no proof that any single person was responsible. Of course, they had their suspicions. Rather than engaging with anything complex and legal that would involve greater surveillance or money or HR or lawyers, all that shit that you want to avoid generally, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. they just quietly stopped calling the nurse in for work the glitch has worked itself out. <laughs> yeah the glitch has been fixed <laughs> in january it seems he was actually officially fired although it's kind of unclear if that's the case but there was no reprimand or mark on his record and so he was able to continue to practice medicine just not at saint barnabas Unfortunately, this passive-aggressive corporate approach to major medication errors and possibly homicidal intentions only ends the first chapter for killer nurse Charles Cullen. Charles Cullen was born on February 22, 1960 in New Jersey, the youngest of eight children. When he was only seven months old, his father died and he was left solely in the care of his sickly mother Florence, who made money sewing for her church, and his aunt who was on disability. His siblings were mostly grown by the time Charlie came around, and his early memories of them involved his adult brothers battling drug addiction and his pregnant adult sisters coming home to escape abusive boyfriends. It seems that his mother tried her best to give him what he needed, but that there was constant chaos in his life, and the young boy didn't get the attention that he craved. According to Cullen himself, his first suicide attempt or cry for help came when he was nine years old, and he mixed the contents of his chemistry set into a glass of milk. Far from killing himself, he became severely ill, but found that this got him the attention he really wanted. He hadn't wanted to die, he just wanted someone to truly show they cared about him and wanted him around. Which is sad for a nine-year-old, like I will That's very sad. Yeah, that's very sad. Yeah. But Cullen never grew out of this desperate need for others and an inability to self-soothe or find peace with the fact that other people had lives that didn't revolve around him. Hmm... When his mother had a seizure at the wheel of her car and died in an accident in 1977, her body became lost at the hospital morgue, although there may have just been a miscommunication between the hospital and the grieving teenager, but Colin felt that the hospital had been cold in their response to his mother's death and had lied to him about her whereabouts. He was completely inconsolable and again attempted suicide and was briefly placed in a psychiatric hospital where he refused to talk about his experience. Colin then joined the Navy, in part because he didn't want to return to school where he was hated, but he also didn't want to live at home without his mother and surrounded by the men his sisters brought home. He likely chose the military in particular because some of his suicidal ideations since he was young had been dying as a hero or a martyr, and he did not do well in the Navy. (laughs) Probably because this was his motivation. I don't know. (laughs) Right. But it wasn't exciting, he spent most of his time mopping floors, and he refused to pee in front of somebody else for mandatory drug tests, which kept making him lose rank. And so he, like, Um. yeah, he couldn't, like, you know, 
really progress in the Navy, and people made fun of him for being, like, a nervous peer, which is, like... Yeah, don't make fun of people for that. <laughs> it's fair. It's valid. It's valid. And, like, he said he wasn't on any drugs. Like, that was not the reason he didn't want to do it. But he was honest about the fact that if an oceanic battle wasn't going to kill him, then he was going to slowly kill himself with alcohol, and he was drunk constantly. If he mm, didn't have like alcohol... intentionally, he, he, he admitted this? Yeah. Yeah, like, okay. I think, too, because he wanted to get out of the Navy, and if he didn't have alcohol, he would drink Listerine or cleaning fluid, like, he did oh. not want to be conscious. He actually tried to kill himself three times during his six-year contract, and the last attempt occurred on January 13th, 1984, when he told a sick bay medic that he drank some poison and was then taken to the Charleston Naval Hospital Psychiatric Ward before finally being discharged from the Navy. Mm. Now, in March of 1984, he became a student at the Mountainside Hospital School of Nursing in Montclair, New Jersey. And this was actually the same hospital that he accused of lying to him about his mother's body. Now that he was back in New Jersey and working odd jobs to put himself through school, he ran into an old classmate named Adrian Baum. They got engaged six months into dating, and they married as soon as Cullen graduated from nursing school. But as soon as Cullen got his job at St. Barnabas and had a wife and a mortgage to think about, the rose-colored glasses came off and the self-deprecating humility that Adrian had thought was actually sweet about Cullen began to show in a different light. He started drinking again, usually alone in the basement, and Adrian would not go down there when he was doing that. Mm -hmm. Like, she, she did not want to go to the basement. I mean, that's a vibe. Yeah. That's a whole vibe. Oh, yeah. You oh, know? yeah. Yeah. Their first daughter was born in the fall of 1988, and then a new dimension of his personality became apparent. Because although Colin had always needed to be at the center of someone's attention, he couldn't have multiple people at the center of his. So he almost completely ignored his wife in favor of the baby. But then he slowly lost interest in the baby because babies are boring and they don't think about anyone else and don't <laughs> put you at the center of their universe. And this worried Adrian. She thought she'd seen him treat dogs in kind of the same way, where he really liked dogs and then he kind of lost interest. But then he became aggressive and she knew I mean, she suspected because she didn't go into the basement, but she could hear him beating their dogs in their no, basement. Oh, no. Right. And then she would ask Cullen about it, and he, he would give her no reaction. Like, he would just pretend he couldn't hear her. And then another dog showed up dead in the alleyway next to their house. It was a neighbor's dog, this, like, ancient beagle. And Adrian took the dog to the vet, and the vet told Adrian that it was possible this beagle had been poisoned. Oh, fuck. Yeah, Adrian yeah. started to connect the dots there. And then at one point, Colin left their baby alone in the house with their door open and went for a walk. And Adrian was obviously, like, shocked by this. Mm -hmm. Especially with, like, you know, are you going to start hitting the baby and doing all the stuff you do the dogs? But she suspected that he'd given the baby cold medicine to put her to sleep while he was out. Yeah. Oh, no. And obviously, you know, she doesn't want to believe that her husband is capable of hurting their children, but... No, no, nobody wants that. But... Right. But she couldn't be positive. And it wasn't beyond him to poison somebody, because he had told her once that he'd poisoned his sister's abusive boyfriend by putting lighter fluid in his coffee and his vodka when Colin was, like, just a kid. Oh. Yeah. So... You know, she tries to ignore these suspicions that she has. She tries to make their marriage work. 
In December of 1991, their second daughter was born, and his drinking became worse. And Adrian calls him out on it. You know, she's like, you can't do this. We have two kids. She tries to tell him, you know, remember everything you learned in, in AA, but he doesn't want to remember AA. He just wants to drink, and he just wants somebody to, like, care about him and tell him it's okay, Charlie. <laughs> we'll feel better. Right. And as far as I know, he, like, didn't try to kill himself at this point, but he staged his body like he'd taken a bunch of pills. Like, one of those, like, pills everywhere kind of right. right, 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 right. Yeah, and yeah. It, it's very, like, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind where he, like, lays on the floor and the, the woman, like, walks past him and ignores him. Adrian did this exact thing. She just ignored him, so he had just, like, yeah. pick up the pills and, like, feel sorry for mm-hmm. himself. Right. Colin's first known victim was John Yango, a judge from New Jersey who was in the St. Barnabas burn unit suffering from a severe sunburn, which, like, Jesus Christ, there's a way to end up in the burn unit. Yeah. And Colin would later admit to killing him with an overdose of lidocaine, but at the time, he was seemingly not suspected of anything other than tampering with the IV bags. After getting fired from St. Barnabas in January of 1992, he immediately found work at Warren Hospital in their ICU. It was while working there in November that Adrian's divorce papers were served to him, like he was at work and the papers were served to him in front of everybody. Wow. Yeah, and this was completely intentional on Adrian's part because she was about to go into surgery for her gallbladder and suspected enough about Cullen and their deteriorating marriage that she wanted to make sure he was completely kept away from her while she was in the hospital. Oh, wow. That's yeah. crazy. Yeah. So her That's father, crazy. Her father escorted her to and from the building and then didn't allow Cullen anywhere near her while she was there. Unfortunately, once she was back home, the couple had to live together until they could figure out how to separate. Things escalated, police got involved, and Adrian ended up telling them everything she knew or suspected about Cullen, and he responded by chasing a bottle of pills with a bottle of wine and landing himself in the ICU at Warren, where he worked. Where he worked, yeah. Nice. <laughs> nice. A co-worker named Michelle Tomlinson began visiting him there, and he talked somewhat openly with her, like, about his depression and things like that. And so mm-hmm. he thought that he could connect with her because she was open, that she was also a little depressed. So she connects with him. She convinces him to get transferred to a psychiatric unit in Bethlehem, and then continued to visit him once he had been transferred. When he was released from the hospital and officially divorced from Adrian, he decided to pursue a relationship with Michelle. Aggressively. They went on one date in March of 1993, where Michelle ordered a brownie sundae, and after that, Cullen kept bringing her brownies at work. Mm. <laughs> I know, I know. Like, if he was... Like, it's like the take the one thing and be like, oh my god, this is your favorite thing ever, right? Right, right. Right. (sighs) Yeah, yeah. And if she didn't take a brownie from the plate he brought, he would, like, put one on the paperwork she was working on. Like, I want you to have this. This. Oh my god, the cringe. (laughs) The cringe. It's reaching nuclear levels. It's so bad. It's so bad. bad. And, like, so she eventually stops talking to him, and he took that as Surprise. Just, he took that as her being busy, like, oh, she's just really dedicated to nursing. And so oh. it gets so much worse. If you're already cringing, it gets so much worse. No! Oh. <laughs> 
They generally worked three shifts a week together, but sometimes he would come to shifts she was on and he wasn't just to visit her while she was at work. No, 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 no. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't ever do that. <laughs> don't do any of this. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't do that. Yeah. No. He called her a lot and she stopped taking his calls. And so he took that as she's depressed and needs me to try harder. And so then her ex-boyfriend, her, like, on-again, off-again boyfriend, he finally picks up the phone and tells Cullen, leave Michelle alone because you are making her hysterical. And <sighs> yeah. And Cullen's yeah. like, if she's hysterical, it's because she's experiencing a depressive episode again. So I need to try harder to help her feel better. No. So he stakes out her apartment. And when he was satisfied that no one was home or they were asleep, he smashed the glass door and then walked inside and watched Michelle and her six-year-old son sleep. No. And so the next morning he calls her and she actually picks up and she, you know, she tells him like somebody broke into my apartment last night and he told her that he did it. Like he just right away admitted, I'm actually the one who smashed your window and broke into your apartment. And then she said... You know, I'm feeling a little crazy right now. <laughs> he said that? She said that. She said that. Okay, I'm, okay. I'm okay. feeling a little crazy right now, which, yeah, babe, I bet you are feeling crazy right now. I am so yeah. sorry. Yeah. And then he said, well, you know, I'd understand if you called the police. And she did. <laughs> she did Good. call the police. Yeah. <laughs> Good. <laughs> so a warrant was issued for his arrest. He drove himself to the station to surrender. But... This is after he downed a combination of Xanax and Darvacet, which is a pain reliever. And so he, like, he does this expecting the drugs to kick in while he's in the jail cell to become a problem for the police. But he gets booked and given a court date, and then he's released. And so he's released as his drugs. Oh, no. That was not a part of the plan. <laughs> like, <laughs> I want to be sensitive to people who, like, need help, but when you're trying to be somebody's problem and it backfires, right. I just, yeah. Right. So he tries to drive away, but the drugs are kicking in, so he almost gets into an accident. And, you know, unfortunately, he doesn't, like, much to his chagrin. And so he has to call his old babysitter on a payphone and ask her to take him to the hospital, which, like, she must be, like, a teenager or something. I'm just like, why did you bring the babysitter into it? I feel so yeah. sorry for all the people around you. Oh, you know what's funny? Okay, that makes way more sense because I was, like, imagining that he's calling, like, his old babysitter. Oh, my God. That would be so Like, that's what I was imagining <laughs> when you said that. And so I was like, Wow, they must have had like a relation. Like they were close. They were close. No, I think. But that makes way more sense that it's his his children's babies. Right. Gotcha. Like it's just gotcha. a number gotcha. he happens to still have memorized. And he's yeah. like, Can you go yeah. get me? That makes way more sense. Anyhow. After being released from the ICU at Warren Hospital, where everyone knew about his divorce and the stalking and the failed suicide attempt he decided to get transferred to the Greystone Psychiatric Hospital at Morristown. He actually really enjoyed it there. He thought he was treated very well, so, like, good on Greystone. But he's only there for a month when Warren Hospital called him back up 
at the psychiatric hospital and asked him if he was available to come back to work as a nurse. Oh my god, nothing like capitalism to be like, yeah, so I know you're going through some shit right now, but you ready to buckle back in and get your fucking scrubs back on, buddy? Right? You're ready to deal with some, oh, like, high-pressure no. situations and, like, have life-or-death choices? Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, and but he said, as long as the doctor on my unit says it's okay, I'll come back as soon as possible. And so he was immediately placed on the night shift in the telemetry ward. This ward is, like, kind of between an ICU and a regular ward. And so it was, like, mostly heart patients who, like, weren't critical, but were still, like, pretty at risk for coding, you know, kind of at any moment, and needed to be under Mm. close observation. Gotcha. And this worked, according to Warren, because it kept him away from Michelle, who'd gotten a restraining order against him, so they couldn't work together. Right. (laughs) But the hospital, like, they didn't think that there was anything wrong with that, like... We'll just keep, but we'll go ahead and keep you because you're a good nurse. And not only that, we're going to call you in from your stay at the psych hospital. Yeah. Like, okay. (laughs) Yeah. And at the same time, Adrian had actually also recently got a restraining order against him. So. Oh, nice. Things are going good. (laughs) And he still, at this time, needed to go to court for the crimes he'd committed against Michelle. But the first lawyer that he had said that Cullen was too difficult a personality to represent mm. and so he had to represent himself in court oh I, no <laughs> and that's that's bad like you should you should be able to have a lawyer represent you should you, no matter right. how shitty you are but he yeah he had to represent himself and that went how that usually goes he knew it was a hopeless case and so on august 10th he pled guilty to harassment and defiant trespass He was fined and sent home with a year's probation and again tried to kill himself with pills and wine. But again, he was just trying to look for someone to care about him because immediately after he did it, he drove himself to Warren Hospital's ER. Oh my god. Yeah. And that's all he got, though? That's all he got? Uh, Yeah, just a year. And I don't even think it was- A probation! A year of probation, yeah. And this wasn't his first offense. His first offense had been in North Carolina for drunk driving, which, like, not related. Separated. Yeah, so I don't don't know, man. Still, though. All of the suicide attempts also lost him joint custody of his children. And so in September of 1993, he had nothing left to lose and the means to take everything from someone else. 91-year-old Helen Dean was recovering well from her breast cancer surgery and was scheduled to leave Warren Hospital on September 2nd. On September 1st, her adult son Larry was visiting her, as he had done so diligently for Helen's entire stay. A nurse came in and told Larry that he needed to leave, so he did, and when Larry returned from getting coffee, his mother told him that the nurse had given her a shot in her thigh. This seemed really odd to both of them, who told Helen's main doctor... But when the doctor examined the injection site, he said he thought it was just a bug bite. Which, like, this woman is telling you he she was injected and you're telling her it's a bug bite? So, the next day, Helen was way too violently ill to be released. She was sweating profusely and then her heart stopped and she couldn't be resuscitated. And Larry knew that something was not right with his mother's death. So he asked her oncologist about it, like, about all the circumstances leading up mm-hmm. to it. And the oncologist told Larry that the injection on the second hadn't been ordered. So 
Larry collects the name of the nurse and calls up the Warren County prosecutor to tell them that Charles Cullen had murdered his mother. Cullen was questioned by superiors, hospital administrators, and the major crime investigation unit at the prosecutor's office, but he denied everything, and Helen's talk screen for nearly a hundred different drugs and poisons came back clean. Her death was determined to be from natural causes. Years later, the medical examiner would say that the toxicology exam had a crucial oversight by leaving off a common heart medication. Cullen was still placed on indefinite paid leave, and then went home, took a bottle of pills, and called for an ambulance. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> right? It's like his go-to coping mechanism. Yeah, this is like his, like, Friday night. Like, yeah, almost. Like, this is, like, like almost his, like, self-care. Like, yeah. Routine. Get out the pedicure, <laughs> get out a face mask, get out the pills, get out the wine, <laughs> get the ambulance ready. Right. It's, all, it's all good. The way Colin saw it, he was going to need a new job anyhow since he was going to have to pay child support now for his two daughters. At the beginning of 1994, he started working at the ICU of Hunterdon Hospital in Flemington, New Jersey. His former employees at Warren Hospital had given him high praise in their recommendations to Hunterdon and told them that Colin stopped working for them for personal reasons. In October 1995, he received a performance report from the nurse supervisor at Hunterdon, which stated that Colin cares about his patient's welfare, and was very bright, witty, and intelligent. Later that year, he received a certificate of appreciation for his attitude and his grace, which also specifically read that, quote, he has no medication errors. <laughs> and perhaps up to that point at Hunterdon, he hadn't. According to his personnel file and interviews later, it was as though he became a different person. He started getting numerous reprimands and write-ups and was over-lubricating patients when he bathed them. Like, other nurses thought it was really creepy, like, how moist these people ended up when he, like, would bathe them and then lotion them up. And he usually <laughs> did this with the blinds closed. Like, I don't know, it's, mm. it's creepy as hell. But worse than that, Cullen was found giving patients drugs which they weren't prescribed and failing to give other patients drugs which they dearly needed. When a pattern became clear, the nurse supervisor pulled his charts and noticed that when the wrong drugs were given to patients, they weren't being recorded. Cullen was even found to be ordering his own labs, which nurses are not responsible for, and they were always incredibly precise tests that he requested as though he was looking for something specific. Nothing could be proven, as at the other hospitals, but on July 19th, 10 days after the death of yet another patient, Cullen was given an ultimatum. One more incident and you're gone. So he quit at, on the spot. He was indignant at the accusations, and so he went home and typed up an angry, ranting letters, which was another one of his favorite ways to rant. He just like really liked mm. typing up these angry, angry letters, which is healthier than, you know, his other coping mechanisms. Sure, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he he went on and on about how he had had perfect attendance and how he had 170 hours of paid vacation time coming and they could just go ahead and take that because he didn't need it. And, like, I don't think this was a statement about how little he thought about the hospital. It was just, like, another form of, like, self-effacement, like, go ahead and take it, like, whatever, right. being a martyr. And so he sends the letter while he's still high on his self-righteousness. 
And then later, like a couple days later, he went in to like try to take it back. I think he wrote a different letter and tried to take it back. <laughs> but they'd already received the first one and they took it as his official resignations. Oh, <laughs> yeah, worked out well for him. So they, they actually allowed him to continue picking up shifts as a freelance nurse, which I didn't uh, know was like an option, but he just decided to never show up for those shifts. <laughs> so this whole saga drags out until October of 1996, when Hunter finally sent him a letter wishing him well in his career future and officially letting him go. And he still needed to pay for child support and for his basement apartment and all that. And so he applied at Morristown Memorial Hospital in New Jersey. And Morristown had used a professional service to vet his background, but all that they found were that he misremembered some of his dates of hire and fire, which, like, that's small potatoes, you know, Pretty, if you were... right. They hired him to work nights at the cardiac care unit, but he lasted there less than a year. Cullen had typically passed as a competent nurse at first, but at Morristown, his patients were found in pools of their own blood, Sinks he used were filled with washcloths for no apparent reason, and patients, when they weren't dying under his watch, were complaining to the staff and saying that the police should be called, but they never were. Oh, oh no. Yeah, yeah. Cullen was actually caught several times giving patients the wrong dose of the anesthetic diprovan, or of heparin, and the final straw for the hospital actually came when Cullen didn't give a patient heparin ahead of a surgery, and the patient died. <gasps> Yeah. Oh my god. When he was fired in August, however, there was no mention of anything specific. Simply poor performance and nurse practice issues. See, this is where the ball has been dropped. So many like, times. So many times. <laughs> like, like, and then they just keep tossing the ball to each other and yeah. just go, like, no, you hire him. Okay, cool. No, you hire him. Okay, cool. Yeah. Like, okay, Colin threw another pity party for himself and wrote a letter to the hospital administration appealing his termination, but the hospital found that the termination had been appropriate. He took a handful of pills and called an ambulance to take him back to Warren Hospital, where he's appreciated. <laughs> what he really wanted, though, was to be taken back to Greystone, the psychiatric hospital. Mm. He really liked to stay there. He found it very pleasant, but he could only be admitted through another hospital. And in all the attempts he'd made between his first admission in April of 1993 and late 1996, he'd never gotten sent back. So he knew he had to really prove he needed to go this time. And so he refused to have his blood drawn for testing, like was just absolutely belligerent, no, you will not take my blood, until security at Warren was called. <clears throat> and then even after he was released from Greystone in December, he drove straight to a police station to report the head ER doctor at Warren for stealing his blood. Oh, no. Yeah. Just being a continual pain in the ass. Yeah. And, like, I don't I don't know if he was, you know, intensive outpatient or, like, what, but his story doesn't pick up again until 1998 for whatever reason. Okay. Okay. But I know he wasn't working, and so after months of not working – and, you know, receiving psychiatric care that he obviously didn't take seriously. Like, it was seriously just a grippy sock vacation for this guy. Mm -hmm. he, he's now $67,000 in debt, and he kind of just needs to take any work he can get. And so he applied to Liberty Nursing and Rehabilitation Center in Pennsylvania. 
but they didn't at all question why a seasoned nurse would want to take work at a nursing home for $5 an hour pay cut from his last job. They did check his references, but all of his references either just confirmed his former employment or stated that he was a, quote, excellent nurse, gave good care, and was excellent with patients. And so Liberty hired him to work the night shift in their ICU. The first patient that Cullen would later admit to killing at Liberty was a man named Francis Henry who needed extra support for a broken vertebra. And, like, by extra support, I mean that he had one of those, like, braces that they used the to halos. just screw into your head. Yeah. 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 And Colin thought that Henry should be in a hospital, not a nursing home. Like, doesn't matter what his actual doctors said. Colin thought he should be in a hospital. <laughs> so during his night shift on May 6th, 1998, Colin gave Henry a huge dose of insulin, which sent him into diabetic shock and caused, you know, a guy who has a metal ring screwed into his head to keep him in place, caused him to have violent seizures. Henry oh fell in- Oh my god. Yeah. It sounds so terrible. It does. It sounds awful. Like sadistic. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Like, And like as a nurse, I can't believe that you would do that to somebody and then just like watch them die. Right. But so Henry fell into a coma and was, was actually transferred to a hospital. But the next day he was transferred- back to the nursing home, and that's where he died. On May 13th, Cullen filed for bankruptcy. He figured the axe was about to drop, but the internal investigation that was initiated at Liberty instead resulted in the termination of a senior nurse, Kimberly Pepe, and Henry was her patient, but Cullen's patient had actually shared rooms with Francis Henry, and so that's okay. more, I think, why she was implicated. Her mm-hmm. lawyers filed a, a wrongful termination suit and stated that Cullen was most likely the culprit and Liberty knew that. But as of 2004, Liberty denied that they had any suspicions about Cullen in relation to Mr. Henry's death. Pepe's suit was settled out of court and Cullen was removed from the ICU and reassigned to the psychiatric wing. And people in the psychiatric wing can be a bit more feisty. And on October 1st, Colin broke the wrist of an elderly woman in this wing when he tried to inject her with drugs she was not prescribed. And it's probably because he found her to be a difficult patient. Oh, my God. In December of 1998, Colin was fired for failure to follow drug protocol, which Liberty described as not giving patients incorrect drugs, but giving patients drugs during unscheduled times. Cullen had only two days of unemployment before a staffing agency found him work at Easton Hospital in Pennsylvania for night shifts in their ICU. On December 28, 1998, a nurse came into Ottomore Schramm's room at Easton where he was recovering from a stroke. His daughter, Christina Toth, was visiting at the time and was told that her 78-year-old father needed to be removed for some tests. The Mm. nurse was holding a syringe, which Christina inquired about, and was told that it was for in case Audemars' heart stopped. She hadn't thought this was going to be an issue in his recovery from blood clots, but she also didn't question it. The next day, however, her father was much worse than he'd been. His skin was waxy and his blood pressure was plummeting. But when Christina came in the next day, prepared to hear the worst about her father, she was told he'd been stabilized and was doing well. On the last day of 1998, Christina received a call from Audemars' GP, Dr. Robert Silberman, 
to let her know that someone, he didn't know who or why, had ordered some unauthorized blood tests, which showed that Audemars had been given digoxin. Audemars had never been prescribed digoxin, and yet his levels were off the charts. Dr. Mm. Silberman told Christina he couldn't explain what was going on, but that follow-up tests were being conducted and he'd get back to her. At 1.25 p.m., the doctor called back at a greater loss for what was happening. The new tests were consistent, and Audemars was dead. Digoxin is a cardiac glycoside, meaning that it is a drug used for congestive heart failure and to control ventricle action. This was the common heart medication left off Helen Dean's toxicology exam. Mm. Many plants have these kinds of effects on the heart, most commonly foxgloves from which digitalis and digoxin is derived, but also oleanders, lily of the valley, and dogbane. These drugs force contractions of the heart by inhibiting the potassium-sodium ATPase pump and the cardiac muscle cells, increasing calcium ion levels, which are essential in cardiac function. Sodium ions start the contraction, and then calcium ions enter the heart for the relaxation part. An excess of these ions causes the heart to contract more forcefully, which can mm. be useful in cases of heart failure and atrial tachydysrhythmias, or even cases of edema where it's used frequently, and I think that was one of the first ways that foxglove was used. But it's not useful in people whose hearts are beating normally, and especially not in the elderly who may be unable to take this kind of pressure on the heart, mm. or may already be on drugs which interact with digoxin, such as warfarin, amiodarone, and acids and antibiotics. So basically it's like if you squeeze your hand in that pump pump, pump pump action mm -hmm. that your heart does and then you squeeze harder for the pump pump there's more of a pause and so that pause causes you to have all this like sweating and like you're not really oxygenating blood the way you should if your heart doesn't need that like it's working hard and it's working slow and now digoxin has really interesting pharmacokinetics if someone were to be given digoxin and then have a blood drop of four six hours the reading would be misleadingly high because the digoxin would not have completely distributed into the body the way that other drugs do to go on to be absorbed and eliminated. So okay. blood concentrations of digoxin decline exponentially every 30 minutes as the drug is actually absorbed from the blood and is distributed to the peripheral tissues. And when the body is finally removing the digoxin, it has a 36-hour half-life from these tissues as it is removed, primarily through the kidneys. This is all for IV administration, as in the case of Audemars Schramm. And the oral route of administration has a di slightly different uh, set of distribution pharmacokinetics, but it still has that kind of delayed action, and then it's very quickly absorbed. In cases of acute overdose, the half-life may be shortened to 13 hours because the concentration of digoxin in the blood can cause elimination before complete distribution, although toxicity may begin to present around 8 to 12 hours after ingestion. But the presentation is always delayed because of how delayed the absorption is. Symptoms to indicate toxicity in acute cases include nausea, vomiting, palpitations, dizziness, lethargy, confusion, weakness, convulsions, unconsciousness, and then death. But the greatest indicator of lethality in a suspected overdose is elevated serum potassium concentration, which is hyperkalemia. 
and this results from inhibition of potassium intake in exchange for sodium, which has been increased. Unfortunately, and as one might predict, if the potassium concentrations reach a lethal level of 5 to 5.5 milliequivalents per liter, managing these levels will not prevent death because the potassium increase is just a symptom of digoxin overdose, and it's really the calcium that needs to be addressed, mm, okay. if, at all, if at all possible. Gotcha. So patients who are caught in a timely matter can be given digoxin-specific antibody fragments. And these bind to the free digoxin and prevent it from binding to active sites and causing that calcium influx. But when you say free uh, digoxin, you mean like the stuff that hasn't been processed in the body yet? The stuff that's just kind of floating around in the blood. Yeah. Okay. But the appropriate time to give these antibody fragments is within 30 to 45 minutes. And so it has. That's not happening. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> yeah, that's not happening. <laughs> like, if you aren't presenting for, like, six to eight hours, like, no one, no one's going to do that. Right. And if patients are already suffering from renal failure, like, when they're injected, the antibodies won't help to effectively eliminate the digoxin from the body because it has to be eliminated through the um, kidneys. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. Overdose can occur easily with digoxin, even in patients who require it because it has a very narrow therapeutic window. To treat heart failure, only about 0.5 to 0.8 micrograms per liter are needed. That's 0.5 parts per billion. Oh, wow. So it's both this narrow window of safety and the long time it takes to peak and then be eliminated from the body that Colin was exploiting. He didn't need very much digoxin to kill someone, too little for almost anybody to even notice, and the death would happen long after he was gone and could be pointed to. Colin was also a bit more familiar with this drug than other nurses, who would have been less likely to guess immediately what the effects they were seeing in patients were caused by. And he was actually known by other nurses in some hospital for being very knowledgeable about medications. So sometimes when things happened, nurses would come to him and ask what happened, and then he would, like, get this chance to show off, but, like, mm, in this way where it's he... just because... Yeah, yeah. Like, he knows what's happening, but it looks like, oh, I'm so smart, and, like... Right. It's actually, like, terrible. terrible, Yeah. Terrible. (laughs) So, after informing Christina of her father's passing, Dr. Silberman told her, When you get to the hospital, they will ask you if you want an autopsy performed. If I were you, I would say yes. Which, like, yeah, sound advice. So she gets to the hospital with some family. They get some time alone with the body to say goodbye. And then Nurse Cullen asked if they would like an autopsy. And Christina said, you know, she thought she would. And the nurse asked her why she would want that. Uh. (laughs) Yeah. If a nurse ever asks you why you want an autopsy, you can tell them to shove it up their ass. Yeah, you can tell them because I fucking want to. Now get out of my face. Yeah. But so the nurse points out that Audemars had a DNR in his living will. And an autopsy would be more invasive than life-saving measures. And Christina was just not having this, which good on her. Yeah. She shouldn't. She told Cullen to leave the room. And then a couple minutes later, a different nurse came in and asked if they wanted an autopsy. And Christina was confused because she was like, I just had this conversation. What did nurse Cullen do? Yeah. When he left? Like, did he just completely fuck off? Which, yeah, right. Obviously, he did. <laughs> so, an internal investigation of Audemars Schramm's death followed along with an 18-month investigation at the coroner's office following his autopsy there, because it was an unsuspected, possibly homicidal death. Mm. The identity of the nurse who was suspected by Christina Toth was unknown, 
and although it seemed unlikely that Shram died accidentally from a Jajoxin injection, they had no further evidence. His death was listed as accidental from pneumonia in the presence of Jajoxin. And so is that saying that he got pneumonia from the Dijoxin, or it's just saying he had pneumonia, comma, there's a presence of Dijoxin? And it, when it's phrased like this, it means that Dijoxin probably played a role in the pneumonia. And so gotcha. he may have okay. gotten the Dijoxin, be- or he may have gotten the pneumonia because the Dijoxin like caused his body to have whatever, you know, happened to it. Mm-hmm. Or he had pneumonia and also this put like extra strain on his heart. Gotcha. Okay. But none of this matters to Colin. None of these investigations matter because by the time the investigation was in full swing in March of 1999 or so, he'd already moved on to the burn unit at Lehigh Valley Hospital in Pennsylvania. He'd spent his early years in nursing at the burn unit at St. Barnabas. And descriptions I read in The Good Nurse by Charles Graber honestly make it seem like the worst kind of place a person can end up in as a patient or working as a nurse like it sounds awful Uh. so there's this this rule he describes called the rule of nines in the burn unit which is a type of morbid math for second and third degree burns and it goes like this each big piece of the body like the head the back a leg that counts as a nine it counts as nine percent of the body So if you add up all of the body parts that are burnt with second and third degree burns and then add the patient's age, that's their mortality rate. So if a 50-year-old has burns on 50% of their body, they're 100% dead, even while they're still alive. Oh my god. And this, this calculation exists and is used because it's a measurement to give staff an idea of, like, where to give their attention and, like, it kind of helps to give doctors a realistic idea of the outcome for a victim's yeah. loved ones. Yeah, it's it's horrendous, all of this burn unit stuff. And a lot of the kids in the burn unit were victims of child abuse who were burnt severely. Oh, God. And then the older kids were there because of, like, campfire mishaps and car accidents. And then many, many old people end up there because they get what are called granny burns, which is when a nightgown catches fire. Yeah, yeah, and that's usually like you know a gas stovetop flame catches it, and they don't really Mm -hmm. notice in time. They don't realize it until it's too late. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, Colin recalls killing four or five people at Lehigh, but only a few of the cases could be verified. And one of these cases is what appears to be a mercy killing, if you can give Colin any kind of credit for thinking along those lines in terms of murder. Which is 100% what he said he did later, but I, I do not believe that. This patient was 22-year-old Matthew Mattern, who'd been trapped in his burning car and taken to Lehigh with burns over 70% of his body. By the rule of nines, he was 92% dead. Even if he lived, he was going to have to suffer through skin grafts, infections, and doctors slicing into burnt skin to allow it to shrink over his body without ripping open or inhibiting <sighs> inhibiting the motion of his limbs it's it's awful it is awful and if he survived his his, basically his entire body was going to be scarred so on august 31st 1999 colin gave matthew an acute dose of digoxin during the night shift and by morning he was dead at the start of the year 2000 colin rang in the new year with another suicide attempt 
And just, <laughs> Happy New Year, everybody. <laughs> right. Despite working in the burn unit at the time, or perhaps inspired by working in the burn unit, he used a charcoal grill that he lit in his bathtub and then stuffed his vents with towels and removed the batteries from his smoke detectors. The woman living in the apartment above Collins could smell the kerosene and called the police. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he could have killed everybody in his everybody. apartment building. But he was taken to the hospital, put on psychiatric watch, and then sent home the next day. Uh, he yeah. didn't even get a 72? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> On, on February 26, 2000, Cullen did the same thing to 73-year-old Stella Danielski, who had burns over 60% of her body. So, by the rule of nine, she is she's 100% dead. Yeah. By April 2000, he was ready to leave Lehigh. The other nurses thought that he was weird, which, fucking, yeah. Yeah. And, <laughs> and he didn't do himself any favors by referring to the senior staff there as the SS in an email meant for two people, but that was accidentally sent to the whole crew. <laughs> Oh, nice. <laughs> this is the cringe where I was like, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> he started that same month on the overnight shift at St. Luke's Hospital in Fountain Hill, Pennsylvania, in the coronary care unit, backed by positive recommendations from past employers. And where in the heart care unit with the digoxin as this drug of choice, like not a good combo. Yeah. Not a good combo. Yeah, it's readily yeah. available. Yeah. It, mm. Yeah. Yeah. St. Luke's was a very good hospital, statistically speaking. It was one of the U.S.'s top 100 medical facilities in 2000, according to U.S. News and World Report. But according to Cullen, this was in part, at least, because they played their numbers. Low patient mortality could contribute to earning a top 100 spot, so sometimes hospitals would transfer dying patients to other hospitals for better supportive care, but it may <sighs> also have been to keep their death rates down. That's so fucked up. I know. I know. And it's so ironic when he said shit like this, but he noted a lack of professionalism at St. Luke's. <laughs> And honestly, like, you know, it was. Like, people were putting diapers on patients instead of taking them to the, to the bathroom. And, I, you know, maybe maybe this wasn't actually happening. Like, this is a, a serial killer saying what he saw. But, like, sure, I kind of don't put it past hospitals to be doing that. No, I don't put it past. Yeah. After all the time I've spent in hospitals, I would not. 100%. <laughs> I'm sure they're like, yeah, let's get a diaper on this. Bitch. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. But allegedly, he also knew the other male nurses would sometimes take nitroglycerin meant for heart failure patients out to the parking lot to smash the cartridges and see if they would explode. And Cullen was admittedly killing people during this time and not getting caught, but he also wanted to prove some sort of point to what he considered was a good institution with poor management. And so there was this antidysrhythmic drug, Prontostil, and it started to go missing around December of 2001. And for six months, it would get restocked and then mysteriously disappear. And that was because every day that he worked, Cullen would just throw it away in the sharps bin when he was loading syringes with poisons for patients. Like, yep. multitasking. And I'm not sure if he wanted the staff hospital to notice it was him, but he seemed upset that they weren't making more of a fuss about it. And that is until they did. In June, another nurse noticed the sharpspin was full of untouched prontostil boxes and empty containers of vicronium bromide, also called VEC, 
which was a powerful paralytic that didn't typically go missing like Vicodin might. Like, it's not a recreational drug. The only reason it would be used was for surgeries and putting someone on a ventilator or something more insidious. And judging by the amounts that were missing, along with some other non-recreational use drugs, it seemed incredibly insidious. Because a typical dose of VEP was around 5 milligrams, and although none of the patients had required any over the weekend, somehow 60 milligrams had gone missing. Hmm. What's worse, overdose by VEP causes the respiratory system to slowly fail while the person is paralyzed, so they essentially slowly suffocate and can't move, but can feel everything that is happening oh, to them. Oh, holy shit. Yeah. That sounds awful. It's nasty. It's super nasty. So later when he's like, I was doing it to help people and they're suffering. No, you weren't. No, no you this weren't. is like, I, you're making people suffer. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. So the nurse who found the empty vials told two other nurses, and they decided to keep watch over the medical supply room. When Cullen left the supply room, they checked the sharps container and found it full of the Prontostil boxes, and so they, like, immediately knew he was the culprit and probably was the mm-hmm. one who was taking all the VEC. And these nurses immediately informed the ICU floor manager, Ellen Armadeo, who was at home. But then they left at shift end half an hour later, and the codes that always seemed to happen during Cullen's shift didn't stop that night. Like, Ellen Armadeo didn't come in and didn't do anything. Mm-hmm. And over the weekend, a patient named Edward O'Toole died from an overdose of VEC that would go uninvestigated for years. It was obvious that Colin had been the one throwing out the Protestill, and it was probably also him taking the missing medications. On June 3rd, he was offered the choice to willingly resign or be fired by the hospital, and he chose to resign meaning that St. Luke's would continue to give him neutral references whenever Cullen's next prospective employer called. Let's just keep the ball bouncing. Keep it going. Yeah, just keep it going. And that next prospective employer had him begin work just five days later for the night shift at the cardiac care unit of Sacred Heart Hospital in Pennsylvania. He began dating a nurse there named Kathy a week later, but two weeks after that, two weeks after that, he was fired from Sacred Heart. Oh, they they, they got that one done quick. They did, yeah. And the reason for his termination was interpersonal conflicts, which Colin thought huh. meant that someone was like, spreading rumors about him or like rumors about him and Kathy. But in reality, one of the nurses at Sacred Heart had also worked at Easton and had heard stories about the death of Odomar Schramm with an overdose of dejection. Some of the other nurses at Sacred Heart also knew the story, not quite firsthand like this nurse, but they had heard it. And they petitioned the administration to fire Cullen or they would all quit. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Kathy allowed Cullen to move into her apartment, and he started looking for a new job with St. Luke's Neutral References. In August of 2002, St. Luke's administration decided to tell everyone in the Bethlehem area that Charles Cullen was beyond consideration for rehire to avoid having him anywhere in the local hospital system. They also told the Pennsylvania State Board of Nursing. However, none of the informed hospital authorities mentioned any patient deaths and failed to pass any of this information on to the police or the public. Nor did they inform hospitals outside of their local area. They really fucked up here. Yeah. Yeah, like you don't think you could have <laughs> taken that one a little further? 
yeah, this seems like important information. I know. I know. Just thinking. But. In September 2002, Cullen started to work at the 6th Medical Center in four years. His Pennsylvania nursing license was about to expire, and he'd pretty much burnt all of his bridges there. So for the 10th hospital in his career, he returned to New Jersey. Despite their insistence that Cullen not be able to find work in Pennsylvania, St. Luke still provided neutral references to the Somerset Medical Center, and he was hired to work overnights in their cardiac care unit. Cullen became close friends with another RN in the ward, 38-year-old Amy Lochran. She considered Cullen to be a good nurse, who took the job as seriously as she did, and she thought she understood the dark humor and eccentricities in Cullen that other people didn't. Being a nurse was hard, and from what Cullen had told her, which I'm sure was a whitewashed version of the truth, he'd had a hard life. And so had Lochran. Even while working in one of the best cardiac care units in the country, she was actively dying from heart failure. She'd been diagnosed with cardiomyopathy while working in the CCU and probably caught the bug that initiated her sickness from a patient there. Oh, that's tragic. I know. Up to the night in October that Cullen learned Lachran was sick, he actually had been a good nurse. He was sworn to secrecy with his knowledge of her illness because she didn't want to be forced to quit working and lose her health insurance because yay, mm-hmm. capitalist America. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Cullen not only took care of his patients and Lochran's when she needed it, but he took care of Lochran as well. Mm. But for some reason, that night marked a turning point and he returned to his old ways. After she collapsed at work in February 2003 and was given a pacemaker, Lochran was placed on a leave of absence, and Cullen was left alone on the night shift. I mean, not completely alone, obviously, but she wasn't there anymore. He wasn't just using Dijoxin alone now. He was administering mixtures of it with the paralytic Pavilon or epinephrine. When Lochran returned from leave in May, she was trying to take it as easy as she could, but as a nurse, that's kind of an impossibility, right? And she noticed that she seemed to be dealing with wrapping more patient bodies in the last six months of work than she had in her entire Mm -hmm. decade-long career. (laughs) And of course, she didn't believe anything nefarious was happening. It just seemed like things were getting harder and harder, both as a nurse and for all of these unfortunate patients. But other people were noticing the patterns. Administration attempted to quietly roll out a new drug protocol called the Insulin Adjustment Form that required nurses to electronically sign and attest as to how much insulin they guessed was left in the vial after use, rather than just letting them use the insulin from the fridge as it was needed. And Lochran thought this was a stupid protocol and refused to agree to it because she didn't want to bet her nursing license on a guess as to how much was, was left in a bottle, because, you know, that was likely to be wrong and have a ton of accumulated error sure. from other nurses guessing. And so she was like, why do we have to do this stupid protocol anyhow? Like, this is insulin. It's not some narcotic drug that you have to be worried about us stealing. What Lochran was told was, just sign it, Amy. This has nothing to do with you. Right. And so she's like, who does it have to deal with then? Right. (laughs) On June 12th, 2003, Jin Kyun Hong was admitted to the hospital with Hodgkin's lymphoma and heart disease. Her cardiologist prescribed her digoxin in 0.125 milligram doses to keep her at a therapeutic level of around 0.63 overall. Another dose was ordered on June 13th, but then the cardiologist determined that the digoxin 
wasn't helping her arrhythmias and might actually have been doing more harm, and so they discontinued her prescription. At 7.30 p.m. on June 14th, Cullen opened up the Pix's computer system, which was like an automated cabinet of drugs or like a cash register, and it could mm-hmm. only be unlocked through authorized access, and then you open the drawer and you take out what you need. He ordered digoxin for one of his patients, but then quickly canceled the order. The drawer still opened because of a glitch Cullen knew about in the system, and so he pulled the digoxin out, even though the record made it look like an accidental misclick that got canceled and no digoxin was claimed. And then he went to Han's room while she slept and injected her IV line with a dose eight times higher than her previously required amounts. Wow. Amazingly, Han survived this attempt on her life. She was violently ill all morning and her heart rate had fallen dramatically, but the digoxin had been identified in her system, spiking from the 0.63 therapeutic level to 9.94 and her cardiologist ordered an antidote, which is probably the digoxin antibody fragments, and Han mm-hmm. held on. Ooh, then, at least they caught it quickly oh and, like, God, I know. got that all worked. Yeah, like, I they know. were on the ball this time for yeah. once. Then, 68-year-old Reverend Florian Gall arrived by ambulance with a severe bacterial infection. He was placed on a ventilator almost as soon as he arrived, and he had signs of kidney failure. The cause of all of his troubles, however, were his heart. Gall suffered from atrial fibrillation. His cardiologist prescribed digoxin to help the heart pump oxygenated blood more effectively through his body. Throughout his recovery, his sister, Lucille Gall, who, like, I have to believe her parents were just, like, Lucille Ball fans, and they were like, right, we have to take this, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But she was always at his bedside. She was given looser privileges than most family members because she was a senior nurse at a nearby hospital, And she had strong opinions about her brother's treatment as a nurse. Like, she didn't appreciate Nurse Cullen giving the Reverend Tylenol when he was already experiencing liver failure. People try to gain control over things in different ways. So, like, that was her trying to get control over the fact that her brother might die and there's nothing she could do about it. You know? like. And it was very possible that he was going to die in that first week. Like, prognosis didn't look good. The family consented to, a D- like, a DNR, and they, like, tried to just be comfortable with that. But then he started to get better, and so the the DNR was reversed, the digoxin was stopped, and then he continued to improve into his second week. And if he continued to improve beyond that, he was pretty much set to go home. Like, he was looking very good. But then at 9.32 a.m. on June 28th, the Reverend Gall went into cardiac arrest. Resuscitation efforts were made, but at 10.10 a.m., he was pronounced dead. His blood work showed digoxin levels that were through the roof, 9.61. Administration recognized that the death was not expected and was not natural. In their internal investigation, the reverend was listed as patient four. So they already were looking at- They're already on this. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But despite this, his cause of death was declared natural- Caused by an abnormal heart rhythm and excess potassium, which are... I mean, that's one way of putting it. (laughs) Yeah, that's one way to put it without saying... That's one way of putting it. Like, (laughs) death in the presence of high levels of digoxin. (laughs) Yeah. And what does that do? Abnormal heart rhythm and excess potassium. Fucking for real. Like, I see see what you're trying to do here. (laughs) It was a natural death. It naturally occurs when you're given this much digoxin. Yeah. Yeah. 
Assistant pharmacist Nancy Doherty was told to contact the New Jersey Poison Control Center on July 7th to ask about the size of the bolus required to produce the blood levels found in Gall's blood. Without knowing the time the drug was administered, it would still be a guess because of the six-hour rule with digoxin. Sure. But there is some rough math that can be done. So Poison Control's pharmacist, Dr. Bruce Ruck, did the math and determined that the reverend would have needed two to four milligrams of digoxin (sighs) to get up to the levels they found in his blood. And Dr. Ruck told Doherty that the hospital needed to contact the police about the issue. He said it very flatly, like, if you have two patients that have high levels of digoxin and two patients that have had high levels of insulin that is, like, obviously injected because (laughs) they could tell, you have a police issue. So Nancy hangs up, but then Dr. Ruck doesn't hear back. And so he called back to check in on Somerset the next day and was told by the head of pharmacy that now lawyers have gotten involved. And he was given the number of the quality assurance manager or the risk manager for the hospital named Mary Lund. And he was told that he could continue the conversation with her because really nobody wanted to talk to him because he was a mandatory reporter to the state. (laughs) He he was like, Mm. if you don't tell the police, I legally have to. Right. So Dr. Ruck and the Poison Control's director, Dr. Stephen Marcus, eventually did have a conversation with Lund later that day. And Dr. Marcus, I think, had probably been involved in, like, a number of these situations in his 20 years at Poison Control. Like, he was familiar with how this looks. And so he was quoted in The Good Nurse by Charles Gaber as astutely saying... You see, the problem is that in every single report like this in the literature in years gone by, there was significant delay in the hospital instituting any sort of legal investigation. You know, physicians, I don't care how good your background is, they are really infamously poor at doing forensic investigation. And the problem in the past has always been that somebody then moves on and, and you know, you have trouble tracking them. As though he knew exactly which story he'd been tossed into the middle of. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I mean, it's not like Cullen was the first angel of death that any hospital no. had to deal with, right? And right. And so, like, Marcus understood that, like, no hospital wanted to be held responsible for having, re- like, employed and then not caught a nurse that was injuring or killing patients. Well, sure. And that's exactly how we'd gotten this far. And, like, Marcus right. was afraid that... <laughs> That more people were going to dis- to die if there was bureaucratic inaction. And he told Somerset, he was like, you're actually already out of compliance by not reporting the incident to authorities within 24 hours of discovery. And, like, they, they keep going back and forth and they're like, oh, well, we really appreciate your input, Dr. Marcus. As if he's not telling them, like, you're breaking the law and somebody is right. like, murdering people. Right. And it was only after Dr. Marcus informed them that he'd already reported their cluster of deaths to the Department of Health that they were <laughs> like, okay, well, I guess we'll reveal our results of our internal investigation to the Department of Health, too. Oh, my God. I know, right? So Somerset told the Department of Health that they'd try to determine... All possible causes of the poisonings, aside from homicide, like we just want to make sure we're covering our bases. Mm-hmm. And that sure. in the event a nurse was intentionally hurting patients, they had also instituted a stricter drug protocol for digoxin the same way they had for insulin. So we're trying here. We're really trying. 
And the interviews conducted as part of the investigation made Cullen realize that they were on to him for his digoxin cancellations in the Pixis system because it recorded all drug requests, even if they were canceled. So the cancellation showed up in the record. And he didn't think that they were looking into any other drugs. And so he used a drug similar to adrenaline to kill a patient while the interviews were being conducted in July and attempted to kill a man named James Strickland with insulin in September, which didn't work the way he wanted. He didn't kill him, and he ended up giving him digoxin that he pulled from Pixis without creating a record for it. Like he was in there getting another medication? Exactly. Yeah, he started to pull medications like Tylenol, ointments, partial doses of nitroprusside. Like super innocuous things like that they maybe don't even need an order for. Right, but they were all located in the same drawer as the digoxin, which Mm, like... So like when it opens up, he was able... Yeah, and so it looks like he's getting Tylenol, but he's getting that. But it's also like, I don't know, is it risk management to have... Something innocuous, something kind of poisonous, something super poisonous in the same drawer, or just have I all know. of the super poisonous stuff in the same drawer. Like, which is worse? I don't know. It just seems like I a know. bad system. It's, a, it's just, yeah. I don't know if, if there is a perfect system for it when <laughs> there's malicious intent involved. Sure. In any sure. way. <laughs> like. As Dr. Marcus had predicted, the delay in initiating a legal investigation allowed more patients to die. By October 3rd, 2003, there were now six patients with unexplainable abnormal laboratory findings, which was the innocuous way they put it, and five of these patients had died. There was Joseph Lehman on May 28th, Francis Kane on June 4th, Jin Kyung Han on June 16th, Florian Gall on June 28th, Francis Odoada on August 27th, and then the death of McKinley Cruz on October 3rd was what finally got Somerset to call the prosecutor's office. If you notice, James Strickland's name isn't on this list. Nor is Melvin Simcoe, Christopher Hardgrove, Philip Greger, or Krishnakant Upadaye, who Cullen would later admit to poisoning. Homicide detectives Tim Braun and Danny Baldwin were sent to the morgue, but were out of their depth completely, especially with how the hospital was explaining things to them. They oh, sure, because they probably weren't talking to them as lay people. They're probably yeah. Well, they don't. They don't really want to talk to them in a way that like gets them to move the investigation along. Like they right. were, they were forced. Like their hand was forced in all this, right? Right. And so, like Baldwin and Braun were like not sure what abnormal laboratory findings really meant and how they were related. And like they'd heard of glucose, they'd heard of insulin, they had no idea what digoxin was. And so they were like, is this a crime? Like, why are we here? Right. If you think it's a crime, why has it taken you five months to involve us? There's a great question. (laughs) Great question. And even this, you know, they're hardly involved because they're like deliberately trying to make this investigation hard. So after Mm -hmm. leaving the morgue, Baldwin and Braun were promised to be sent the paperwork from the internal investigation. And Baldwin expected it to at least be like a binder, you know. But instead, that afternoon, they got a five-page memo that was two months old. And it was titled, Re-Reverend Florian Gall v. Somerset Medical Center. And it read in part, 
We agreed that there was nothing so overtly suspicious at this point in time, either from records of Mr. Cullen's demeanor itself, that would necessitate a call to the authorities. The memo was addressed to the Somerset risk manager, Mary Lund, who was a former nurse. Like, she knew what was going on. Mm -hmm. It, It was written 10 days after the investigative interview with Cullen and then took two months to reach the police. It all seemed very suspicious to Braun and Baldwin, but they thought that maybe Lund could help make sense of it all. And she told Baldwin that there wasn't much more information she could add to the documentation that he'd received because the Pixis computer only held records for 30 days. She suggested he investigate a male nurse named Edward Allett. Apparently, Allett and the hospital had issues with one another because of unions and corporate drama. Mm. Yeah, she's just trying to throw this guy under the bus. Because when Braun searched for him in the National Crime Information Center database, he didn't find anything. And so out of curiosity, while he's in the database, he decides to search for Charles Cullen, and he got two hits. He got the criminal trespass in Pennsylvania and the drunk driving in South Carolina. But both were over 10 years old at this point. Still, he decided to call up Palmer, Pennsylvania to get what he could from their records bureau on the most recent arrest. And the rep there confirmed that they were talking about the same Charles Cohen and that the charges in that case had been dropped, but then told Braun that there was a sticky note attached to the file folder. Because, yeah, (laughs) apparently the state police in Pennsylvania had called asking about the file a couple months earlier over concerns about stockpiling medicine and digoxin. And so Braun hears that and he's like, oh, shit, digoxin? Are you fucking kidding me? Wait, wait. I know this one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so Braun took down the number of state police trooper Bob Egan, and then Baldwin followed up with him. And Egan described the suspected Dejoxin overdose death at Easton Hospital, but said that the investigation had been abandoned and they had nothing more on Cullen. But their dead end was just the beginning for Baldwin and Braun. They started to put together a timeline of Cullen's nursing career and began asking questions and pulling records at all of the hospitals he'd worked at. Many of the hospitals, like Warren and Hunterdon, were stiff with the investigators when they were told a homicide investigation was being conducted. Mm-hmm. And they claimed that Cullen's employee records were missing or destroyed. Uh- and in some cases they were because it had been, you know, more than seven years or whatever, so they didn't need to hold on to them. I mean, sure. Like, that's fair. Like, I get that. Like, I'm not keeping employee records. <laughs> like, I, I get that. But, like, this one seems important. Yeah. Like, this one seems <laughs> like, like it maybe deserves a sticky note and to be kept in a permanent location. <laughs> I don't know. Poisons people. <laughs> <laughs> question mark? Yeah. Question mark for that legal. Legal question, question mark. Yeah. Question mark. <laughs> And it was the same sort of reluctance that they were getting from Somerset, which had brought them into their investigation, given them five pages of a single memo, and told them they hadn't taken a single note beyond that to help them. Like, when they were like, did you take notes in the interviews you conducted with staff? They were like, no. And it's like, who the fuck doesn't take notes? I know. (laughs) So, to to Braun and Baldwin, it all seemed like a bunch of suspicious bullshit. And they kind of were starting to think that maybe the hospitals knew what Cullen was up to, but they didn't want to admit it and look like they, they'd they been had, you know, like they'd been mm-hmm. deceived. 
or worse, they'd been deceived and allowed patients to die, like, mm-hmm. knowingly. Mm-hmm. They didn't want to be sued, and so they covered it up. Like, that's what this is all looking like, is cover-up after cover-up. Mm-hmm. But nurses were not the same as hospital administrators. Nurses talked. <laughs> At St. Luke's, the nurses' stories made their ways to the coroner and then to the Lehigh County District Attorney, who set to attempting to determine how many deaths Colin may have been responsible for just there. One nurse calculated that it could have been as many as 58% of the deaths that occurred in the CCU while he was employed there. Wow. But nothing that could be taken to prosecutors or a judge was ever found, and the state police dropped the case. And this undoubtedly was due in large part to the fact that St. Luke's was trying to build another location and didn't want a lawsuit on their hands if something was uncovered about Colin's actions while being employed by them. Because then they would lose the financial backing to get them that extended Mm. campus. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I will say this is allegedly, of course, (laughs) I think it's undoubted. They say it's not true. Like, as of 2004, they're like, us building the campus had nothing to do with us not finding anything on Colin's case. Mm. Braun and Baldwin weren't going to let something like that happen again. They wanted Colin stopped and held responsible for all the patients that he'd killed, and they needed hard evidence to pin him down with. The lack of memory stored in the Pixis stymied them, and they wanted to find out more about how the system worked. So they called the manufacturer, who told them that since Pixis was a computer, it held all of the information ever captured by it about medication withdrawals. Baldwin took this new information to Mary Lund and told her if she did not hand over Somerset's Pixis records, he would seize the machines and have them analyzed by the FBI's forensic team. Mm-hmm. That afternoon, he walked out of the hospital with records that showed Cullen had ordered and then canceled the Joxin on several occasions immediately before patients died. Good that they finally got something. <laughs> I mean... But just the fact that the hospital administrators were like, no, 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 we don't have any of that. And it's like... We don't have it. That doesn't exist. Yeah. The records only last for 30 days. Which, like... Shut the fuck up. No, yeah, yeah, for real. For <laughs> real. But this is, like, 2003 and, like, uh, I don't know. Yeah. Do, did people know how computers worked back then? I don't remember. I mean... <laughs> no. But we were, I mean, this was about the dawn of MySpace, so all of us were about to be HTML coders, and we weren't, we didn't even know it yet. I know, right? If only I'd remembered any of that. (laughs) I know. But Colin was changing up his routine now, knowing that the hospital was on to him. He wasn't ordering and canceling the Jackson, but a host of other things, as I previously said. Mm Mm-hmm. Yet, he was still managing to pull it out of inventory. On the night of October 21st, electrical engineer and hospital volunteer Ed Zizek died from a digoxin overdose. The Reverend Gall was the best option that investigators had for piecing together a series of events and gathering autopsy information, but his case also had something that the others didn't, and that was the righteous anger of a veteran nurse who felt betrayed. When Lucille Gall was told by Braun and Baldwin that her brother had not in fact died from natural causes and been called on God's time, but had been given an overdose of a drug and then not told about it by anyone in the medical field in which she was a proud member, she was furious. She consented to have Mm. the reference body disinterred and re-examined. Oh, wow. So the ball was getting moving, but not fast enough. 
With the death of Ed Zizek, the investigators knew that they had to get Cullen out of the hospital while they gathered the evidence needed to arrest him. And so they got him on a technicality. He'd put the wrong dates on his employment application with Somerset. And this was the reason that the hospital gave him for his termination on October 30th before escorting him out of the building when his shift was supposed to start. And Lochran was just as surprised as Cullen about the reasoning behind the hospital deciding to fire him, if not more. Like, she did not see this coming at all. So Cullen explained to her that the hospital was just scapegoating him because they needed someone to take the fall for Reverend Gull's sudden death. Like, everybody knew that these interviews were happening, and so he was like, that's all it is. They're just trying to, like, pin it on somebody. Mm. And Cullen knew he wasn't the most, like, nurse in the ICU, and Lochran knew this as well. So she she pretty much buys this. And then more interviews were held now that Cullen was out of the picture with the hospital. And with the story they'd been given, the other nurses feared for their jobs. They were They were very concerned, like, well, what if I put the wrong month on my resume you know whatever but they weren't comfortable with being entirely forthcoming in their interviews to try to like save their jobs and give information about whatever was being asked because mary lunn sat in on every single interview that baldwin and braun conducted but as fate would have it when lochran was interviewed lund was called away for whatever reason she leaves the room and so baldwin showed lochran cohen's pixis printouts And when she first sat down, she was like, this is bullshit. Charlie should never have been fired. I can't fucking believe it. Like, she she just said bullshit a bunch of times and was like, this is so fucking stupid. And then she looks at this report and she immediately goes from defending her friend to having her world completely rocked. Because she realizes that everything on the Pixis basically proves her friend is a serial killer. Like she yeah, sees this. that's a pretty rough realization. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's, like you said, like, your world is rocked. Yeah. Goes, oh, yeah. no. Yeah. And so she immediately begins working for the police. She's a nurse. She's like, I have to save lives. Like, you've shown me hey, the evidence. we love to see it. Yeah. We love to see it. Yeah. And so she becomes an informant for them and her role was to maintain a relationship with Cullen so the authorities could keep an eye on him and they would know if he got hired at another mm. hospital. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Gall's new toxicology report came back on November 29th showing high levels of digoxin and all tested fluids. His cause of death was amended from natural to homicide from digoxin toxicity. It was another step in the right direction to have a murder weapon and a suspect, but there was still no strong evidence to convict. It's basically still all circumstantial. So what they needed was a confession, and they needed it soon, because Cullen soon found work at Montgomery Hospital and was scheduled to begin working night shifts in their ICU on December 8th. So Lochran got taped up with a wire and had lunch with Cullen on December 12th, and she talked to him for like a while and was telling him like you know people don't get investigated nearly five times for deaths surrounding them even when they're long-time nurses like i'm a long-time <laughs> yeah, nurse that's yeah and i don't have yeah i've yeah. been investigated one or five times yeah yeah and so <clears throat> she she gets him right up to the edge of what could have been a confession And then according to her, he completely changed it. So it's like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Like, his affect changed. She felt like he was just, like, looking through her. She'd never seen this side of him. Mm 
and he quietly told her, let me go down fighting before leaving the restaurant. And that must have been enough for the police. Like, they didn't get a confession, but they had enough of a concern about him staying free that they followed him from the restaurant in squad cars and arrested him. They interrogated him for nine hours and still couldn't get a confession. He basically just, like, wrapped himself into the fetal position and then melted into the floor and cried and shouted, I can't, over and over and over. (laughs) (laughs) And, like, normally, of course, I'm not a fan of intense interrogations because, you know, people start to lose it because people are normal. Right. But we know this guy, he did it. He's just throwing a pity party for himself. Right. It just feels overblown and melodramatic. (laughs) Yeah. But... Once they brought Amy Lochran into the station on December 14th and had her ask Cullen one more time if he would tell the truth, he finally did. She asked him, how did you kill Father Gall? And Cullen told her that he injected him with the Joxin. And then after that, the story just poured out of him. He talked for seven hours and described the death of at least 30 patients that he could recall. Fifteen of these were at Somerset alone. He admitted to contaminating the IV bags with insulin early on in his career and then up through his time at Somerset, and he also admitted to killing Helen Dean with digoxin, which Larry Dean reported as a murder and vowed to find justice, but died in 2001 before seeing it. Ah. No. Colin also claimed that he did everything he did to end the suffering of patients, but that is obviously not the truth. Yeah, that's, that's bullshit. Yeah. That is bullshit. Like, sorry, my guy. I do not believe you. (laughs) I think Charles Graber, the author of The Good Nurse, and the journalist who has perhaps gotten to know Colin the best since his confession, described it best. He sees himself as a victim, and as a victim, he's entitled to lash out in any way he wants to make things right. If that means killing patients, anything justifies his victimhood. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. I think he's just, he's, he thinks he's a victim of, of mm-hmm. everything. Somerset Hospital did not take any responsibility for Cullen's actions, despite their attempts to cover them up. The CEO boasted that they helped to stop Cullen and were the first hospital employed by him in his 16-year-long career to do so. In fact, they blamed the other hospitals solely for their inability to provide relevant information in Cullen's background check. I mean, it's kind of fair. Like, part of that is fair. Yes. I will give them part of that is fair. But, like, also, they are denying some culpability here. (laughs) Yeah, when they were, like, actively covering shit up. Like... Yeah, they're... Yeah, so, like... Maybe just stay quiet. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) This is a time where you want to shut the fuck up. Yeah. St. Luke's Hospital still claims that they fully investigated Cullen for their part, and even after his confession in 2003, they and the Pennsylvania State Police maintained that they did not find any evidence of wrongdoing. In 2003, Somerset and other New Jersey hospitals supported the passage of the Cullen Law, which requires healthcare facilities to report employment misconduct, impairment, or incompetence that could impact patient safety. And these reports must also be made available to future employers for that employee. Okay. Cullen admitted to killing 29 patients and attempting to kill six others, although it is believed that he was responsible for the deaths of some 400 people. <gasps> Holy shit, really? Yeah, yeah. Experts think that it's it might be between 300 and 400, but it's hard to tell in 
a lot of the records have been lost and a lot of the patients were cremated, so there's no testing. Mm. Wow. He pled guilty in court and promised to cooperate fully with investigators to get a plea deal that saved him from death by lethal injection. In reality, though, he only partially cooperated and was usually quiet and sullen in court, but sometimes acted out or refused to participate in proceedings. In March 2006, he was sentenced to 18 consecutive life sentences in the New Jersey State Prison with no possibility of parole. He has never issued a statement or offered an apology to his victims or their families. The most it seems he has done in the name of any semblance of good is donate a kidney to the brother of his ex-girlfriend, Kathy, and uncle to Cullen's youngest child, because Kathy was pregnant when Cullen was arrested, and he's never met this kid. Okay. And the uncle actually wasn't the one who requested the kidney donation, but his mother did. I don't think that he was even aware that Cullen was the donor up through the donation. It was like an anonymous thing. Mm. Okay. And Cullen seemed to jump at the opportunity when approached and explained his enthusiasm by saying that after all the lives he'd taken, he wanted to help save a life. But I don't think anybody bought that. A prison reverend who had gotten to know Cullen during his early years of incarceration thought that maybe he was hoping he would die on the operating table so that mm. he'd finally get his martyr-like death through mm -hmm. passive suicide. Makes sense. And all of this was happening during court proceedings in 2005, so it could have also been that Colin was just trying to avoid appearances in front of angry relatives reading their victim impact statements. He almost broke his plea agreement with this whole donation, but it, it would have meant that he would have donated the kidney before being sentenced, so he could have like done it in a timeline where he's like, this guy's going to die, I really need to do donate this kidney. But breaking mm -hmm. his plea deal would have also meant that he could have gotten the death penalty. And that could have been his plan oh. all along, right? Oh, right, right, right. Like, who's to say? But his lawyer wanted to be better than that. And so ultimately, he was given permission for the donation, but it had to be after his sentencing was complete. So he donated the kidney and whatever. That's That's been it since 2007. Colin's going to die in prison and is possibly one of the worst and most prolific serial killers in American history, but that also pairs well with the title that he is also a self-centered lying asshole who will have a bunch of time in prison, probably not being rehabilitated, unfortunately, but having to deal with the reality of his actions until he dies there. Well said. Thank you. This is a big one. This I is know. A big, yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't ready for such a big case. I wasn't <laughs> ready for it. I know, and I feel bad after last season with serotonin. Like, go to the hospital if you need it. Just like, you know, mm -hmm. <sighs> I don't think nurses are going to kill you, but go but to damn. Damn, yeah, yeah. Bad apples spoil the bunch. Yeah, I know, right? And capitalism. It was really capitalism and all It was along. really capitalism. Is yeah, <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please like, follow, subscribe, and review us everywhere you get your podcasts. For more Lethal Dose content, you can find us at Lethal Dose Pod on Instagram, Tumblr, and TikTok. For an overdose of content, subscribe on Patreon for exclusive episodes and much more. The show theme is Look Far by our dear wizard friend Fogweaver. More of their music can be found on bandcamp.com. Lethal Dose is created, researched, produced, and edited by Kayla Woods and Bina Stainetko. Stay safe and remember, the dose makes the poison.